You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 18, there are a few beautiful themes found within this chapter. But the first one that we launch into is the theme of prayer. And the work and labor of prayer and really crying out to God. And prayer is such a beautiful thing for a believer to be able to do because in one sense, it's very similar to what Christ did for us. He took our burdens and our pains into his own body there upon the cross. And in prayer, we can so often take the concerns, the needs, the worries, the sicknesses, the depravity of man, the condition of our culture and city, we can take them to God in prayer. But one of the things that you often discover when you enter into prayer is that it is incredibly difficult to persist in prayer. One of the questions that Jesus will ask in this text is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I think you and I want to be people who are people of faith, who cry out to the Lord, who are leaning and dependent upon the Lord. We don't pick up the gospel uh, by faith, enter into a life in Christ by faith, and then depart from a walk of faith to now do it in our own strength. No, we cling to God in prayer. Now, Jesus will introduce this concept by introducing a parable. In verse 1, it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus here, or excuse me, Luke here, gives us the point of the parable even before we hear the parable. And the point of the parable is we ought to always pray and not lose heart. In other words, the alternative to prayer in Luke's estimation and with what Jesus will teach us is the losing of heart. You'll either pray or you will lose heart, much like Paul and Silas As they prayed in the Philippian jail in the middle of the night in Acts chapter 16, we're impressed by it and blown away that in the middle of the night they would be rejoicing before the Lord. But the alternative, the alternative to allowing your heart to sail in the presence of God is that your heart would shrink and fade and fail. And so Luke here lets us know that the point of this whole parable that Jesus is going to give is that the alternative is not an alternative. We must pray and not lose heart. He said, now here's the parable in verse 2, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So a judge is described. He's a corrupt judge, we assume. 
And often in the culture that Jesus was writing to, corruption abounded in the political judicial system. And a lot of time, these these judges would use their position for financial gain. If you wanted a hearing in the sight of a judge who would usually be traveling from town to town, you had to pay. You had to pay to play. Now, this widow obviously has no earthly resources to offer the judge. She has many obstacles, not only poverty, but she also does not have a husband. She's a widow and she's a woman. So in that culture, that was a negative. So she has the obstacles of gender, aloneness, and poverty. But the judge eventually said, I'm going to listen to this woman's request. I'm going to hear her because of her persistence, lest she, he said, beat me down or literally give me a black eye with her continual coming. Now, what Jesus is doing here, and we have to be careful to make sure that we say this the right way, Jesus is not saying that the judge resembles God, but he is casting the judge in juxtaposition to God. In other words, if even an unrighteous judge would hear the prayers and the cries of this woman, how much more so would a good and righteous and loving God hear the persistent pleas of his own people, not widows that are estranged from him, but his own children? The Lord said in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So, of course, the argument from the lesser to the greater. If even an unrighteous judge would hear, our God is better than he. You see, the judge, what he coveted was personal peace and ease, and security. But what God craves is not those things. It's very obvious that God gives, and gives, and gives, that God leaves his position of comfort, and ease, and security, even becoming one of us, and dying upon the cross. So, as we pray, it's important to remember that we are praying to one infinitely more beautiful, and wonderful, and fair, and just, and gracious, and merciful, and kind, than this unrighteous judge would ever or could ever dream to be. Now, notice also in verse 7 and 8 that Jesus says God will hear his elect who cry to him day and night. He won't delay long over them. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, there's likely in the words of Jesus a specific comfort to the persecuted church that's here. And I think it probably would be an error to breeze through a passage like this and simply say to ourselves, if we're living in an uh, unpersecuted region or season of history, it would be wrong for us to say, there's, okay, I'll pray. I'll be a praying person. No, we, we must come to that conclusion in our own hearts. But we also must first say, what a beautiful encouragement this would be to those who are persecuted here on earth for righteousness' sake, to know that God will avenge them, that God will hear their cry in the midst of that persecution. But here Jesus seems to also be saying, listen, if a widow 
who has no position, no right, no authority, no heritage, if she was heard by an unrighteous judge, then we, with all the position that is ours in Christ Jesus, will be heard by our God. In other words, the first argument is, well, the lesser to the greater. But here we have the argument of the lesser position to the greater position. This woman was a stranger, but we are the children of God. This woman had no access to the judge, but we have access to our Heavenly Father. This woman was alone. She had no advocate or friend, but we have an advocate and high priest in Jesus Christ, the righteous. This woman had no promises she could cling to, but we have the promises of God toward us. She only had a court of law. We have a throne of grace. And so Jesus announces, listen, God is going to hear the prayer of the righteous. If the unrighteous judge hears the prayer of this woman, so will the righteous God hear the prayers of his own people. Then Jesus asks in verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now in chapter 17, we saw a bleak picture concerning the conditions at his return. It doesn't look like there will be a lot of faith. Here Jesus says, When I return, will there be faith? Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? I love this from Jesus. There's no hesitation. No possibility that he might not return due to prayerlessness. No, he just says, I will return. And when I do, will I find a praying people? So just a motivation to cry out to God. Now in verse 9, he continued and also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we have a second parable from Jesus recorded by Luke here concerning prayer. And in this one as well, we also get a bit of an insight into where this parable is going. He told this one to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there's something about what Jesus is about to say that will correct a trust in the self that you're righteous, which obviously abounds, a self-righteous spirit. And also that corrects then the outflow of that, which is to treat others with contempt, to look down upon them. Jesus said in his parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. We're not to approach God with this self-righteous spirit. Notice that the Pharisee listed sins that he had successfully avoided. Thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. And then secondly, he also listed some of his spiritual accomplishments. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. One of the diseases of mankind, of course, is this brand of self-righteousness. We naturally think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. And this disease 
is perpetuated by a comparison to others. Notice that the man said, or even like this tax collector. The cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. The eyes of our understanding must be opened by the Holy Spirit. And we must, in order to know ourselves well, have a little glimpse of God, his holiness, his righteousness, so that we might agree with Isaiah when he said in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips, dwelling amongst a people with unclean lips. This man did not come to God with any humility, but instead boasted and felt self-sufficient and smug in the sight of God. This is the attitude of so many who come to God thinking that if I sing to you, if I attend church, if I pray, if I give, you owe me something. But that is not the case. You cannot earn your salvation. This Pharisee had thought that he had done just that. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector prayed with humility. His prayer was real. The Pharisee talked to himself. He really wasn't speaking with God. But this tax collector, his prayer was from the heart. It was real. His prayer was personal and direct. He knew what he was asking for. He had a request. And his prayer was humble. He saw himself as a sinner. He stood far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. We cannot begin to be good until we feel and say that we are bad. And that this man understood that. I am bad through and through. And I want to be good, but I need the grace and the strength and the help of God in order to be so. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I've seen this time and time again. Great men, friends, I've seen them succumb to self-exaltation. But it's so much better to simply wait for the promotion and the exaltation that comes from God. Psalm 75, verse 6, It is not from the east or from the west. It is not from the wilderness that lifting up comes. But it is of God who executes judgment, pulling down one, and lifting up the other. As James said in James 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it says in verse 15 that they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So now here in this movement, everyone comes to Jesus, even babies and children. He had just spoken of humility, and speaking of humility... Here's a group of lowly people, everyone coming to Jesus, even the babies and the children. Now, the goal in bringing the little ones was that Jesus might touch them. And of course, we would ask why. 
probably for a customary blessing from this famous rabbi. And the disciples rebuked those who were bringing the children to Jesus. We don't know why, but perhaps they were thinking that Jesus was too busy or too important or too focused on his mission. Jesus, however, in verse 16 said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. And it's good for us to make sure that in our families and in our churches, we do not do things to keep children from Jesus and to make sure that we're teaching them well and speaking to them on their level and showing them Christ rather than putting them in environments that are unhealthy for them and unhelpful to them. No, we want to bring them to Christ. But Jesus then said in verse 17, using this whole scene as a teaching opportunity, that if whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is an underlying attitude that pervades all true prayer and all true Christian life. And it's simply this, the kingdom with all the blessings that are found inside of it must be by believers received. The mature Christian, we've mastered the childlike attribute of knowing how to receive. You have to receive forgiveness. You have to receive reconciliation. You have to receive grace and righteousness. You have to receive your adoption. You have to receive the spirit. You have to receive eternal rewards. You have to receive the word of the gospel. You have to receive God's mercy. You have to receive power by faith. You have to receive even your food and your marriage in a thankful heart before God. And so the importance of having a heart that is ready to receive from God. Luke then records in verse 18, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Notice the question that is asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We just saw in verse 17 that we have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. A child does not try to earn their household room or earn any wages. No, a child simply receives. Receive, receive, receive. A child really feels that they are not there to make a major contribution to society. That will come later in their lives, but that as a child, they are there dependent, dependent upon others to care for them and love them and provide for them. But this man did not come as a dependent. This man did not come to receive. No, he came to do. What must I do to gain eternal life? Now, putting all of the Gospels together, and specifically the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn that this man was young from Matthew, that he was wealthy from all of the Gospels, and that he was powerful here in Luke, a ruler perhaps part of the Sanhedrin, but maybe more likely than that, a part of the local synagogue. So he's a young, wealthy, powerful person, but still he knows that something is missing from his heart. Jesus begins to respond to the man by simply asking him, well, listen, you've approached me and called me good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus latches on to the title that the man gave to him when he called him good teacher. 
And Jesus could only have meant one of two things. He either meant in his response, Hey, I'm not God, so stop calling me good. Or he could have meant, I am God, that's why you are calling me good. And obviously, knowing what we know about the rest of the Bible, option two seems to be most consistent. And so Jesus here is introducing the idea that his goodness is evidence of his uh, deity. Uh, We borrow goodness. Uh, It comes from God. But Jesus's goodness was intrinsic to his very nature. And, And the question, of course, is why did he latch onto this concept here? Well, I think it's this. The man thought that he was a good man. And Jesus needed the man to see what true goodness looks like so that he could see his own need for the righteousness of God to be imputed to uh, his account. And the true goodness is only found in the holiness of God. Jesus said in verse 20, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, Jesus here in reminding him of these commandments was giving him commandment five through nine of the second tablets, uh, second tablet of the 10 uh, commandments. What Jesus is doing here is not saying, hey, if you do these things, you'll be saved. No, he's trying to lead this man to an understanding of his own guilt so that then he can repent and believe and be saved. The man, though, said, all these I have kept from my youth. So basically, he says, I'm good. Even though Jesus had just said, only God is good, the man now says, I'm good. I've kept all of these things uh, from my youth. He couldn't see that he was guilty of the law in a spiritual sense. He didn't know the spiritual nature of the law. And so when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It becomes quite clear to us that Jesus here is not prescribing, but diagnosing. Jesus wasn't defining righteousness, but decrying the lack thereof inside of this man. He wasn't showing this man a path to eternal life, but he was diagnosing the disease that was keeping the man from eternal life. So when he says to the man, one thing you still lack, sell everything and give it away, he's not saying, oh, hey, this is the one thing that you need to do to become saved. The one thing that you need to do to really get everlasting life. No, he's trying to show the man there's a problem. There's a problem deep inside your soul. You are guilty. You are broken. You are covetous. And that covetous nature within you can only be fixed by the grace of God, only forgiven by the mercy and the grace of God. But instead, the man went away sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it is true that wealth often hinders people from entering the kingdom of God, from partaking in the kingdom. Even back in the Old Testament era, the people of Israel were warned in Deuteronomy 6 verse 12 when they were to go into the promised land in the future to make sure that when they prospered, they did not forget the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, money is dangerous, not because of it, but because of our hearts. Money is neutral, but in our own hands, it will either be used for good or evil. And so this man, it had overwhelmed his heart. And Jesus said, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those who heard it, who remember, in their culture, along with the Pharisees, they thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessings. So if a wealthy ruler could not be saved, who could be saved? That's why they say, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, there is no idol of the heart. There is no imperfection within that Jesus Christ, by his grace, by his blood, cannot touch in a person's life. Come to him, lean upon him, cling to his cross, let his blood wash you and cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Turn to him to get at even the innermost inklings and longings of the heart that are sinful and wrong. Peter said in verse 28, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, Jesus uh, had spoken of treasure in heaven. Peter hears this. He wants to announce to the man, listen, we might not have sold everything and given it away, but we have left everything and followed you. What will we get? What is our reward? And Jesus, through his response, lets him know, it's incredibly rewarding to follow Jesus, particularly or peculiarly because even in this life, there is a blessing that's found there. But there's also, of course, the eternal blessing that comes later in following after the Lord. And it is truly rewarding to sacrifice, to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ. And taking the 12, verse 31, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for you will deliver over to the Gentiles, and, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus here alludes to the Old Testament, which had described and foretold that the Christ would be crucified, his disciples would be scattered, he would go to the cross alone, that his friend would betray him for 30 pieces of silver and that money would be used to purchase a field, that he would be silent before Pilate and Herod, that he would be flogged, that the crowds would mock him, that the soldiers would cast lots for his clothing, that he would drink sour wine on the cross, that none of his bones would be broken, that he would be buried with the wealthy 
and that he would die at that specific moment in history. But they understood, verse 34, none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy upon me. So Jesus now, approaching Jerusalem, 17 miles from Jerusalem, draws near to Jericho. Now, there was a man who was begging, quite the opposite to the rich young ruler. Mark tells us that this man's name was Bartimaeus, and Matthew tells us that there was actually a friend with Bartimaeus, another beggar, along with him. He sat by the roadside, he cried out for Jesus, and he could not be silenced. He called Jesus a messianic name when he called him the son of David. That seems to have captured Jesus' attention. It says, And Jesus stooped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. What do you want me to do for you? Was the question from Jesus. The man was so clear. I want to recover my sight. Jesus said this happens by faith, not by works. And so this man receives his sight. And unlike the ruler who walked away from Jesus, this blind man now healed follows Jesus, which is, of course, the appropriate response. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.